This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Hereditary and Me. Hereditary and Me, the only ancestry test designed to give you a completely comprehensive understanding of your genetics, including whether your family line has been cursed by an ancestral demon. Hereditary and Me, we give you knowledge of all secret things. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's... What, D- Demonic Cults Week? Yes. On Pod Cemetery with 1975's The Devil's Reign and 2018's Hereditary. If you go back and listen to our episode on, I believe it's Hellraiser, we talk about our immediate thoughts after we actually saw Hereditary. Spoiler-free thoughts. So if you want to hear what we have to say about the movie, spoiler-free, you can listen to it there before you listen to this episode. Plus, it's a good excuse to listen to our episode on Hellraiser, I gotta say. But before we get the show started, Kelsey, what do we do? We start with Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Why don't you give me a question? What was the name of the novella that 1987's Hellraiser was based on? Fuck. It's not called Hellraiser. It is not. I will tell you that. Fuck. I don't know. The Hellbound Heart. Yep. Mm-hmm. I remember because it reminds me of, what's the Edgar Allan Poe story? The Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart, yes. Yeah, it reminds me of that all the time. All right, Kelsey. What is the main town in which it is set? Dairy. Dairy? What state is that in? Maryland. Mary, Mary, Maine. You want to try that again? Maine. <laughs> yep. Because fucking every single Stephen King story is set there. That's right. You should be able to name every city that every Stephen King story is set in. What's, uh, what's the one he uses all the time? Bangor. Banger. Banger, Maine. Bangor. Yeah, well, Yes. All right, Kelsey, the first movie we are watching is 1975's The Devil's Reign, directed by Robert Fust, written by Gabe Esso, James Ashton, and Gerald Hopman, and starring, this is probably going to be the most exciting part of this entire discussion, Ernest Borgnine, Ida Lupino, William Shatner, Tom Skerritt, John Travolta, Mm -hmm. and... The High Priest of the Church of Satan himself, Anton Sandor LaVey. Is he actually in it? He is. As as one of the people? As just one of the high priests of this cult. Just like John Travolta. Just like John Travolta, who has, like, no speaking lines. He says blasphemer, and he says one other thing. But we do see him a lot, you just can't tell it's him because of the makeup. Yeah, he has a lot of makeup on, and, well, we'll get there. (laughs) All right, Kelsey, what is Devil's Reign about? Devil's Reign is about, it's kind of complicated because they don't really clarify a lot of things, but basically a dude back in pilgrim times 
uh, got a bunch of people to sign a book saying that they gave over their souls so that they could have good lives. Whatever. But then a family stole the book so that they couldn't be taken to hell. So they've just been existing on Earth as, like, these empty vessels because their souls are stuck in this big, like, urn thing. Yeah. Uh, which also contains the devil's reign, which don't ask me to explain that because it, it doesn't really make sense. It is very ill-defined. <laughs> and uh, basically they are stuck here until they can find the book. This is basically the entire plot here. Like that this is what the movie is. And they get the book back and then another one of the boys from the family has to go and get the book back again. It's kind of weird. Should people watch it though? <laughs> if you're into funny bad horror movies, it's it, fun. It's kind of a slog. It's slow. But the some crazy really ass good. shit happens. The first half is awesome because it's like it goes really fast and you think, wow, this is just moving right through uh -huh. it. And then suddenly it completely switches the protagonist of the film and then it slows down to a crawl. But still crazy shit happens. Yeah. That was kind of my general feeling about the movie is that it's boring as fuck. Fuck, until something happens with no preamble and no explanation, it just happens. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess this is happening now. And if you're into that and you want to see Ernest Borgnine in heavy makeup and you want to see William Shatner crucified. <laughs> Corvus! Yes, it, it sounds just like when he calls God! <laughs> Corvus! Damn you! Yeah, you could pass this one up, but if this all sounds kind of interesting to you, go ahead. It's free on YouTube, so check it out. I guess. Yeah. When we I, I like, I'm glad I saw it. Yeah, I mean, now we have this little bit of trash horror history that we've experienced, so I guess yes. I'm happy about that. Yes. You can decide to. Learn that history yourself, too, or get it indirectly from us. Either way, when we get back, we will talk about 1975's The Devil's Reign. The Devil's Reign with Ernest Borgnine, William Shatner, Eddie Albert, Keenan Wynn, John Travolta, Tom Skerritt, and Ida Lupino. What is it, Julie? What are you seeing? I can see them. They're, they're looking for the book. Fine. A curse on thee and thine forevermore. I will follow thee and thy descendants for all eternity. I will Until the book is mine again. Hail, O deathless one. Calls me from out of the pit. An angry Lucifer lashes out and attempts to forever trap these sorrowful souls in a living hell. Will he succeed? Find out with The Devil's Reign. All right, Kelsey, why don't you walk us through the actual plot of this movie? What happens in The Devil's Reign? I'm going to go kind of quickly through this. Oh, I'm so happy with you. Because... <laughs> 
like I said, like we just said, it's quite slow, so we don't really need to... Uh, We're not going to get into all the details, no. because the movie doesn't bother getting into all the details either. Yeah, that's the weird... I mean, like, I guess it's not weird, but, like, it doesn't care that you don't understand mm-hmm. what's going on. In his review of this movie, Roger Ebert admitted that he came into the movie a little bit late, and he, for a second there, he thought he was watching a Western until Ernest Borgnine came out and was all like, Hail Satan! <laughs> Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Okay, so the first half of the film follows Shatner in all of his Shatner glory. Yeah, he and re- he is he is maximum Shatner. He here. really, really is. He, I mean, all the jokes about his acting like... This yeah. is exactly what he does in this movie. Please take it. No. They won't give the devil's man what he wants. Your father My would father have... would agree with me. So it opens and he is with his family, but then his dad dies and his mom oh, gets it taken. Oh, it right into it. Like immediately a, a dude just melts. <laughs> like, whoa, what? <laughs> yes. And then, yeah, his mom gets kidnapped when he's outside and it's all over a book that his family has. And they've been hiding in the floorboards of their home. Yes. And the mom gives him like an amulet. It's like, don't take this off, but he fucking does. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. And uh, so he goes to get his dad and his mom back. So he takes the book because Corbus is like, yeah, you can get your mom back if you bring me the book or whatever. And so he takes the book and he drives out to where Corbus, this mysterious man named Corbus, is. Yeah, and like, it's not really clear if he's the devil or if he's just a demon or if he's just a dude. It's not really clear at all. Yeah. But he has like these followers. Yeah, the thing is, is that Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> he had an interesting career. He was he was a he was a villain in westerns like that's like kind of originally where he came from and you can kind of see that villainy come out here and you can see why. I think he could have been like, you know, a seriously sinister actor. I mean, he has passed away. I I hope I'm not talking out of turn. I'm pretty sure he passed away a couple years ago. You might know him from McHale's Navy, which is when his his career kind of took a turn to the silly and the comedic. And it never recovered from that. I shouldn't say recovered. He had a a good career. He did. He won an Oscar, or was at least nominated for an Oscar for a movie where he he played a dude who's supposed to be ugly and kind of unworthy of love. And he does find love in this What's movie. What's the movie called? It's called Marty, a middle aged butcher and a school teacher who had given up on the idea of love, meet at a dance and fall for each other. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, he actually did win an Academy Award for Best Actor for Marty for playing an ugly man who finds love. And But that this kind of where his career took a turn. But you also might know him from Basketball, where <laughs> he's the rich tycoon that gets the whole basketball league started, and he complains about you youngsters and your Pac-Man video games. <laughs> you kids with your loud music and your Dan Fogelberg, your Zima hula hoops and Pac-Man video games. It's so good. God, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Borgnine is the leader of this cult that worships Satan. 
and his name is Corbus. Corbus. <laughs> Corbus. And I totally understand why he thought it was a western because Corbus is in the middle of a ghost town. Yes. In the middle of the desert. Yep. So for I mean, I guess because it's a set that they could get and they wouldn't have to hire extras also, and they all sorts of weird things can happen without Exactly, past, without know. lots of people around. Yeah, uh-huh. And shit does happen. Multiple cars explode. and <laughs> he, It's so great. Shatner shows up to this town and Corbus is walking into this church and, and Shatner points at the screen, like, at the church and he's like, Corbus, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to come out unchanged. Corbus! I'll face whatever you have behind those doors and come out exactly as I went in. Yeah, because Corvus is challenging him. Come into the church with me and you'll see, you'll change, you'll see what everyone else sees. He's like, I have my cross or whatever. He goes in and he sees this satanic ritual. Mm-hmm. And he Faith f- against faith. Yep. And he sees his mom. And they're all there, and they have their hooded robes on, and they have these great prosthetic eyes that are actually, I mean, kind of good for what a low-budget movie this is, where it doesn't look like they have a lot of prosthetics on, and it looks like they really don't have eyes. It's It's a pretty good job. Like, something's been done, and you can believe it. And he freaks out, and he runs out, and he's like, I got my cross. You can't change me. I still believe in God and Christ and all that. And and he... Corbus turns it into a snake, and so he throws it away, and now he doesn't have his cross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's kind of a weird thing to do. I get it, because usually we associate snakes with evil, but... That's what Moses did. That's exactly what Moses did. He turned his staff into a snake, and I think he... It, the, the snake ate two things, like, to show that God does exist. Uh-huh. So it's funny that it's being used here to show that God doesn't. Or at least that they're powerful and God More can't powerful. protect you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So now they can hurt him because he throws it off of him. And they're going to torture him. And this is the first time that we see the goat face. <laughs> we see it for a brief second. When this chick... So this is when the movie changes. All of a sudden the movie's like... Yeah. Oh, now we have a new protagonist. Yeah, cut to somewhere completely different after all this stuff has happened. Somewhere completely different and somebody's putting on what looks to be a medical symposium of some sort. And it's an older man and Tom Skerritt who are doctors and they're like, hey, we believe that psychics are real. And we're going to show you. Here's my wife and she's going to have visions. And it's here that she sees... That uh, Shatner is going to be tortured. She sees a goat face. She sees all these things that are going to happen. And she kind of freaks out. And then Skerritt knows that, like, his whole family is dead. Well, so he goes goes back to the house that we saw in the beginning and finds the old man there. The old man that was there with William Shatner and William Shatner's mom, who's just kind of like an old family friend or something who lives with them. But he's an idiot, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and he doesn't know what's going on, and but he does know that they've gone, they've been gone missing, and they they went out towards this ghost town, and that's all you know, that's all he says. And Tom Skerritt's like, "Well, I guess we're going out there now," and he takes his wife, <laughs> and they drive out in their station wagon yes. to the ghost town. 
Now Tom Skerritt is our new protagonist. So, uh, cut back to Borgnine torturing Shatner. And he's like, I still don't believe. And, he, and Borgnine's like, whatever, you gambled and you lost. And he's like, Lilith, queen of delights, come and show him. So fucking random. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, it's just things just kind of happen and then they're forgotten. Yes. Lilith, the queen of delights, comes and it's like this woman. This and- beautiful woman. And he's like, he believes he can beat us. Show him. So then she goes to make out with him and then it's his mom. Yeah. What? And, huh? What is that supposed to mean? Behold, Lilith, queen of delights. He truly believes he can deny us. Show him. Mother. I, uh, what? And Shatner's scream here is fantastic. <laughs> So then we get a flashback of what happened back in Pilgrim times. Yes. So, Ernest Borgnine, still Ernest Borgnine. There's no, like, Ernest Borgnine well, and William Shatner are both. Well, Shatner is supposed to be a, a relative. descendant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I, Ernest Borgnine, I'm pretty it's sure just is, him. he just exists forever. He's yeah. just immortal. So he runs basically a cult in Puritan times. And this is where they sign their names in the book. And Shatner's wife, Aranessa, steals the book and hands it over to the church and says, you know, spare me and my husband and I'll give this to you and reveal who all the Satanists are. And so this secret meeting of the Satanists is barged in on by the church and they round up everyone and they set them on fire including Aranessa and Shatner, because the priest was like, well, you guys are too far gone. How I'm saving you is by trying to save your souls. You know, I'm going to destroy your corrupt bodies or whatever like that. And that's so, eh, so that she gets burned at the stake too. And while it's happening, Borgnine is like, Aranessa, I shall curse you and all your daughter's daughters. And Martin Fine. A curse on thee and thine forevermore. I will follow thee and thy descendants for all eternity. Until the book is mine again, thou art sworn to Satan, and I will deliver thee to his glory. Vengeance will be mine, Aramissa. Vengeance will be mine. Well, you missed the part where he, he says, thou art the one, and he slaps her, and we had to listen to it three times because it sounded like he was saying, slap. Yes. <laughs> As he slapped her, slap the first time. Yeah, we had to rewind it and listen to it over and over again until we realized, no, he was just saying slut. <laughs> thou art the one. Slap. But it's so much better when you think he's saying slap. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, back in this church where they're going to be sacrificing William Shatner, for some reason, they don't explain why. I guess maybe it's just to punish him. Uh, They put him upside down on a cross. There's this pit of fire up at the altar. It's just opened up, and it's a pit down. We never see down into it, but we can see that fire comes out of it. And maybe it's a pit to hell. That's what's implied. It's so unclear. Borgnine 
They talk about summoning Satan while they're all there. And Borgnine like, kind of looks down. And when he pops back up again, he's just Satan. <laughs> he's got that goat face I said about, I talked about earlier. With the horns and everything. It's so great. It is so great. <laughs> it is so good. But I guess he's just Satan now. And he says, who calls me from out of the pit? Yeah, it's unclear if like he was Satan the whole time and pretending to not be Satan. Or if Borgnine's just lending his body to Satan. Yeah, to it's use. very unclear. Hail, oh deathless one, who calls me from out of the pit? The doctor comes, the older doctor comes to meet Scarrett, who's gotten away. And they come back to this ghost town together. Oh, did we mention that the wife got kidnapped? She got kidnapped. That was a kind of, it made me it jump just, moment. Yeah. <laughs> she got in the car and she's just driving and out of fucking nowhere, the mom pops up in the back <laughs> and then grabs her face. And that kind of made me jump. Not going to lie. So Scarrett and the doctor come back to the town to get his wife and Scarrett's brother back, who is Shatner. And they they come up across the church and nobody's there. And they find this vessel, the Devil's Rain vessel. It's this giant orb thing that it looks like it's constantly raining inside and there are people inside and they're wailing and all of that. Okay, this is where all the souls are kept. So the idea then is that they are actually already trapped. He just wants to get them all down to hell. He just hasn't been able to do that because he didn't have the book. Yeah. Right? Showing that they sold their souls to Satan. And so the idea is that he's been lying to these people to keep them so that they'll keep following him. Yeah. Right? So the implication then is that they do have a choice, right? But he takes the mother and the father and Shatner and they don't have a choice. Yeah, so what happens is when he converts them and they become these things with no eyes, they're like these soulless bodies and they just do whatever he says. But that's so not kind true of like because zombies. they tell them later, you have a choice. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I think that that's false. I think that's in general, you have a choice whether to follow Satan or not. But these guys are like zombies, basically. You'd think so. Yeah. They're a little bit more ambulatory than zombies. They walk around like real people, but they don't really have thoughts for their for themselves. And so when when they all come into the church to confront Scarrett and the older doctor, the doctor's like, I will destroy the vessel if you don't let my people go <laughs> and he's holding it up and I'm going to smash it. And then Shatner just kind of like takes it from him and he lets him. <laughs> it's like, dude, put up a fight, throw it on the ground, do something. Yeah. And he does nothing. And he just lets Shatner take it from him. But then he starts saying, destroy it. You are free to choose, free the souls and free yourselves. Believe that you can be saved. Yeah. So he's, he's asking, uh, he's asking Shatner to, to destroy it, hoping that Shatner's, like, soul is still in there somewhere. And he is. Yeah. And he does. So, yeah, Shatner does, in fact, smash this vessel, and the devil's reign gets out, in addition to all the souls. So, where the souls go, we don't know, but they're freed from their torment. No fucking idea. <laughs> but it starts to rain, like torrential downpour, and all of these vessels... Start melting. And I say start melting because this is a process that takes at least, at least 746 hours. 
it is so long that we are dealing with these bodies just melting in the rain one after another over and over again. Realistically, it's probably like 10 minutes of actual movie time where these bodies are just melting. And this movie's like not even an hour and a half long. And, and 10 minutes of it is devoted to these bodies melting. Yes. It's kind of nuts. And the devil slash Borgnine also kind of melting, which makes me think that he's not really the devil. He's just a vessel for the devil. And all these vessels are melting in the devil's reign. He starts melting, and so, instead of melting to death, rolls into that fiery pit I mentioned before. I guess going back to hell, because it's really unclear. Is this a portal to hell? No idea. No idea. So, Tom Skerritt and his wife, they leave, and they're looking at all this stuff. Uh, Yeah. They they leave, and he's holding her, and and they're... they're looking at all this destruction and he's holding her and the camera pans around and it's not her. It's Borgnine. And he smiles. That's weird. How and what, what is yeah, actually exactly. happening here? What's what? being communicated here? What? And then cut to a shot of her behind glass and it's raining and she's screaming, let me out, help me save me or whatever. And it's wait, is she in the vessel now? Because the only scenes that were like that were in the vessel, and the vessel was destroyed. So where is she supposed to be? No fucking clue, and the movie doesn't want to tell you because that's where the movie ends. I guess it's a it's a new vessel where like I guess when it's released, it forms a new one. It what is the devil's reign? Why does the devil's the devil's reign destroy the devil's vessels, like the bodies of his followers? Wouldn't it be good for them? Would that be maybe the Lord's reign? Like, it's really fucking unclear. Yeah, it makes zero sense. It's just they wanted cool things to happen. And let me reiterate, cool things do happen. (laughs) The melting effects are really cool. Like I said, cars just fucking explode. (sighs) The Ornest Borgnine in the Satan makeup. Shatner yelling, Corbus! Corbus! It's great. Scarret with his scarret mustache. It's awesome, the things that happen. But it's hiding in this package of just boredom. (laughs) Where in between these moments of cool is just long stretches of just just like the ghost town. Mm -hmm. It's like the movie's like a fucking ghost town. Every once in a while, you stumble on something that's cool. (laughs) But what it's trying to say... Who the fuck knows? No idea. It's all over the place. So, Kelsey, lightning round. Well, first of all, another thing that makes zero sense. At first, he has these people because they put their names in the book, right? Yeah. So, and then he does say, I will curse you and all of your descendants. Yeah. So, the family, I understand. The chick, though, she's not related in any way. And she didn't put her name in the book. So, what? He can take whoever he wants? Yeah, it's so unclear. But I I mean I guess I guess the book is for sending people to hell and she's not in hell. She's trapped in the devil's reign. And how and why to what end? No fucking clue. <laughs> Cuz the movie just wants to show you cool twisty things and not have to put the work. It is in. a tragic ending. Yeah. Cuz it ends with it's it's silent and the, the the credits are just rolling over her depressed face. Yeah. It's really 
oh, and I didn't say this. So before that happens, you know, I mentioned just there's a car that just blows up. Yes. The church explodes. (laughs) And everything goes everywhere. And seriously, the melting just never ends. It just goes on and on and on. And then cut to that pit and a hand pops up out of it. Like the end of Masters of the Universe when Skeletor says, I'll be back. (laughs) I'll be back. No, you won't. You're not coming back. It's like they're teasing a sequel, a sequel that never comes. (laughs) Or maybe it's supposed to be one last scare or something. But again, I don't know what I'm supposed to be scared of here. Nope. No idea what I'm supposed to be scared of. I like in the beginning when it's a major rainstorm and Shatner comes in completely dry. (laughs) I yeah. love that. Uh-huh. Uh, let's talk about Travolta a little bit. He is, uh, apparently his character's name is Danny. He gets is a it? name. Oh. Yeah, so he finds the book that they leave in yes. the church, and he hands it over to Borgnine as they are, they're bringing Tom Skerritt's wife on the Upside Down Cross, like they did with, with Shatner before. And, and Kelsey says, there's the one line where he's like... Blasphemer. Blasphemer or whatever. And that's like it. But this is literally his first Hollywood role. And this is it, guys. This is what started Travolta down the Scientologist path. It was on the set of this movie that another actress gave him a copy of Dianetics. And his life forever changed. And according to him, for the better, he did get super fucking popular and rich. And then he had another transcendence when Pulp Fiction came out. Like, he's done very, very well for himself. But he's fucking nuts. Mm -hmm. And this is what started all of that. Who knows? If this didn't happen, we might have have never gotten the Travolta that we know today. (laughs) Also, who knows if that's a good or a bad thing. True. I just thought that that was really interesting that that this is it. This is what happened. When, um... Shatner sees his dad melt in the rain. His face is amazing. Yeah. His terrified face is so great. Shatner's hilarious in this. The movie starts panning over a painting, and I was like, that looks like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It is, mm-hmm. apparently. And just with moans of the damned, that's the opening. It's just scrolling over Hieronymus Bosch. If you don't know who Hieronymus Bosch is, Google him. <laughs> Bosch is B-O-S-C-H. I'm not going to spell Hieronymus for you. His paintings are all of, like, hell and stuff like that. Really twisted visual stuff. And, like, souls being tortured in hell and all that. And then you get these moans over the top. Oh. Like, this is the opening for a good minute, minute and a half while the opening credits play. I just thought that was a bold choice. (laughs) So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? It has a Rotten Tomatoes score, but only 10 reviews and no consensus. So, with that in mind, keep in mind, there are only 10 reviews. And it's a percentage of reviewers. 20. That is exactly right. Cool. Yeah, you know it has to be on a 10 because, Mm -hmm. yeah, 20%. No Metacritic, of course, no CinemaScore because I think CinemaScore came out in like 75 or something like that. Overrated or underrated? Maybe just slightly under. Yeah, there's some stuff here that makes it – I wouldn't – maybe not worth watching, (laughs) but 
more than a 20%. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 33. 35 is what I was going to say. Look how we're like dead on. Yeah, it's better than that. It's, I wrote down here, first, this movie is so painfully slow and yet delivers on weird shit so often at the same time. It is so weird and yet so boring. <laughs> Unless you count the fascination with how it was made in the first place. <laughs> Nothing happens, but then everything happens. How did anyone see this script and agree to be in it? And then later on in the movie, I wrote, I think I figured it out. <laughs> Shit just happens with no explanation or ramp up. And so that's the exciting stuff that's like, oh, this is going to be good. But the spaces in between are just slow nothing. <laughs> Those moments are like an oasis in a desert town. <laughs> Or that pump, that well, where Borgnine pumps the water and it tastes bitter or whatever. It's bitter. Sweet way to end a thirst, though, isn't it? <laughs> you get water, but it's not water. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about The Devil's Rain, Kels? I'm glad I saw it. Thank you, Adam, for telling us to see it. Oh, Adam. Yes. yes. Thank you. Adam uh, recommended we watch this with Hereditary. Do you want to talk about the what they share in common? Or do you want to leave that till when we get to Hereditary? Let's leave that till we get to Hereditary. Because I was pretty shocked at how much of it is a lot like Hereditary. I mean, we're we're talking about generations passing down curses and stuff like that. But we'll talk about that when we talk about Hereditary. So let's talk about Hereditary, shall we? No, we can't yet. Oh, right. We have to do Trivial Pursuit. Horror edition. That is correct. Why don't you give me a question, Kels? In 1999's The Sixth Sense, what is the profession of the protagonist played by Bruce Willis? He's a child psychiatrist. Child psychologist. Psychologist. Yeah. Good catch. <laughs> All right, Kelsey. Because I really want to do this movie because I know you fucking love it. We haven't done it yet. I'm still going to ask this question. Okay. What is the name of the youngest Freeling child in Poltergeist 1982? Carol Ann. Carol Ann is right. Carol Ann! Don't go to the light, Carol Ann. <laughs> it's like my second favorite horror movie of all time. Really? I thought it was your favorite. It and Rosemary's Baby duke it out a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, we will get to that eventually. I mean, I don't know that Rose. I don't know that there's any like question. Rosemary's Baby is probably a better movie. Sure, but I have a bigger love for Poltergeist. Okay, so then, I love yeah, both. Of that's them. your favorite, then. They're incredible movies. Then that's your favorite, I'd say. All right, moving on. We have 2018's Hereditary. Written and directed by Ari Aster, who is a young filmmaker. That is to say, this is like his first major film. But it stars Tony Collette, Millie Shapiro, and Gabriel Byrne. What is Hereditary about? A woman's mother dies. And we see the repercussions of that death pan out over her daughter's Family. All right. Okay. Teasing it. Yeah. Should people watch the movie? Yes. And I liked it. I think 
Okay, I tried to listen to our episode about this, but I never got around to it, so I don't know exactly what I said the first time. So anyone who actually just listened to it and is like, wow, I know more about your thoughts than you do. Good for you. <laughs> um, I think I liked it a lot better this time. A lot more than I did the first time. Yeah, because I know you didn't like it as much as I did when we watched it the first time. I really like it now. Yeah. Our big comment was that uh, it's basically a family drama for the first hour or so, maybe more. And it's a very compelling one. Uh, but you're not going to get a lot of horror. It's more like a creeping tension. Yeah. Uh, and when the, you watch it the second time and you know what to look for. Right. You, there's a lot more elements to it that are yes, horror. That, that you, you understand a lot more and that are more horrific because you know what they're about. But before that, it's just like, well, that's weird. Yeah. You know, and and that's it. Should people watch it, though? Yes. Yeah. I think you should. You can rent it now or buy it. But we definitely suggest that you watch it. I would also like to say, before we talk about Hereditary, to tease you guys a little bit, at the end of the episode, we will be talking super brief. Don't worry. It won't take very long for us to say what we have to say. Super briefly about our non-spoilery thoughts about Suspiria. I mentioned that because we saw the trailer for Suspiria when we watched Hereditary. And we were like, ooh, that looks really exciting. And Kelsey was more excited about the possibility of seeing Suspiria than she was about having seen Hereditary. <laughs> boy, oh boy, was that wrong. <laughs> we will talk about our non-spoilery thoughts about Suspiria at the end of the episode. So please stick around for that. Yeah. In the meantime, when we get back, we will talk about 2018's Hereditary. Sorry, baby grandma. You know you were her favorite. Who's going to take care of me when you die? She isn't gone. You know you were her favorite. I swear I can feel them in the room. You know you were her favorite, right? Something is happening. I think my mother put a curse on us. Mom? I need to call the police. The police can't help us. Mom? favorite right all right kelsey what happens in hereditary we open on the day of tony collette's mother's funeral specifically we open on her the text of her obituary then cut to the tree house the tree house which will become very important yeah then we get a pan because we're looking out a window around a like a craft room we find a model home inside the craft room. You know, like the ones where you take the front off and you can see every room inside of it. And we zoom in steady until the room is taking up the full shot. And then we realize that this is actually live and Gabriel Byrne walks in to Alex Wolf's bedroom, tells him to, you know, get up. They're going to be going to the funeral. And the reason that we see that dollhouse is because 
the mother, Tony Collette, she does like dollhouse representations of her own life. Yeah. So she's a famous artist for that. So there, she like builds these artistic dioramas and we're going to get kind of into it. But what she builds are these moments that she has trouble processing. She takes a neutral view of the event by recreating them in these dioramas. And that's what her artwork is. Uh, that's how she processes these events that she otherwise has trouble processing. And the film itself is kind of shot in a similar way where just like that shot of Alex Wolf's room, the son of the family, it's shot on a wide shot of the whole room kind of static. And yeah, we get inner intersectional shots where, you know, we got over the shoulders and other shots, but it doesn't, the camera never really turns around to show the other side of the room or it does. So very rarely, so we get a lot of these shots where a lot of the, uh, like, it's wide shots of all these different rooms, so it kind of has this diorama feel to it, and that happens throughout the movie. But it's not every shot. It's just, like, these establishing shots. Like, oh, this is the diorama that we're in for this scene, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. And in order to accomplish that, they literally built the entire set on a soundstage so they can, like, remove walls, and, and film it that way and get these wide shots that you would not otherwise be able to get because you have to deal with the actual physical space of a home. So instead, yeah, they built this house to be able to be to take it apart and get these amazing shots. So the father goes to find the daughter in the treehouse. And he says, my God, you can't sleep up here. That's how you get pneumonia. And she says, that's OK. She kind of plays the character as if she's mentally retarded. Yeah, and Kelsey makes a point of this. We don't know if that's, like, why that choice was made. This young girl, Millie Shapiro, she's a great actress. She's known for doing Broadway. She's a stage actress, which is really weird because in this, she's absolutely not a stage actress. She's hmm. very muted and reserved and not behaving in a way you would expect not only a stage actress, but a musical theater stage actress, but a young child musical theater stage actress <laughs> to behave on screen. Not at all. I think she does a fantastic job. But why was this choice made? We'll talk about what possible theories there are for why she behaves this way. She is not um, mentally disabled in actuality. Uh, if you're curious what kind of disorder that she has. It's the same thing the kid from Stranger Things has. Yes, uh, cleidocranial dysplasia. It's a physical thing, and that's it. Yeah, but she plays her very strange. Yes, she is a strange child. Yeah. We get this speech from Tony Collette talking about her mom, saying how her mother uh, had secret rituals, secret friends, was a very private person, would be humbled at all the people here, but perhaps even a little... Suspicious. Suspicious. Yeah. While this is happening, we get a cut of all the people walking by the, the dead lady, and Millie Shapiro stops there and looks at her and turns, and there's a dude in the background just He's smiling. just smiling at her. Yeah. Little things like this, which I think I just kind of brushed over when I first watched it. Well, because like, you're like, oh, oh yeah, something's going on there. I don't know what it is. 
you forget about yeah, it. Yeah, uh-huh. While Millie Shapiro is sitting there listening to her mom, she's drawing, and her drawings are very strange. Which, again, like, is that supposed to mean something? Yeah, the girl that Alex Wolf's character has a crush on at one point in the movie says, I caught your sister drawing me once. She made me look retarded. Now, I, I hate saying that, but... It is what the character says, and it is very realistically what a high school kid would say. But it's a commentary on the way she draws people. She draws people very bizarrely. Sometimes they look like they're in pain or, you know, or they look strange. they're just kind of wonky looking. Yeah, and part of that can be chalked up to a child's drawing, but there's something unsettling about, like, the facial expressions they have and stuff like that. Uh, where, you know, yeah, it's a commentary on this this kid who's has this weird element about her that is very unspoken through most of the movie, other than people saying, yeah, that's just her. That's just who she is. Yeah, and she does this clicking tongue thing, which the uh, trailer loved. It used it a lot. It made you think it was going to be important, and she does it a lot, so you think it's going to be important. It's a little important. It's, it's At the used... very, very end, it's used to tell us something. One right. quick, short thing that we could have figured out no, on our own. hold on. But also, it's used throughout that, even after the halfway point of the movie. It like it's it it basically is the sound that Millie Shapiro's character that represents Millie Shapiro's character. I gotta say, as a kid. I did mouth noises too. I loved that sound, by the way. I loved making that noise. I would make noises with my mouth. Things like... I would, like, make noises with air in my mouth. And I would do that. I did it for years. Just, like, idly, you know? And then somebody said, why are you, why are you making that noise with your mouth? Or how, do, how are you doing that? And I'm like... Or whatever... I was just showing them what it was, but in my head, I was secretly panicking because for whatever reason, it just never occurred to me that people could hear that. That was just my own private little thing that I did to amuse myself. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea. And it's not that if somebody asked me, hey, do you think people can hear that? I probably would have gone yes, but it just never came into my mind. That this is a thing that other people could hear. So the idea of a little kid making a noise that's like a signature noise, it's believable to me. Okay. Um, we also learn that she loves chocolate, but that she has a really bad nut allergy. And it's like, this is so overplayed to make like a big thing that's important happen. But it's like, they bring it up several times and she's always eating chocolate. And I'm just like, okay, we get it, movie. Yeah. You don't need to do it over and over and over again. She has a sweet tooth. She's allergic to nuts. Yeah, we get it. But it's also the same kind of thing that parents would actually do. You know, Gabriel Burns' character is like, that doesn't have nuts in it, does it? And she's like, no. Okay, good. And and she leaves. And as Tony Collette's character sees her leave is like, that doesn't have nuts in it, does it? Because we don't have her EpiPen on us. Like, just establishing she's allergic. Allergic enough that she would require an EpiPen. So we also learn... When Charlie is in bed, Charlie is Millie's character. When Charlie is in bed and Tony Collect's character is talking to her, we get this experience that we get throughout that Tony Collette is a little bit kind of removed from her family emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I think Charlie feels that. 
So she asked the question, you know, who's going to take care of me? And Tony Collette's like, what do you mean? I'm going to take care of you. And Charlie says, but when you die, who's going to take care of me? Tony Collette is just like, hey, your father is going to take care of you or your brother. Did you notice that she turned when she said her brother? No. Yes. No, I didn't. All of this, I am. I wonder how much Millie Shapiro's character is supposed to be aware of. Because they do a lot of very subtle things that mm-hmm. tell us that she can foresee certain things. Yeah. But it's like, if she can foresee certain things, why do certain things there happen? Is, there is some kind of... I don't I want to say force. I'll say force right now that is in her. Whether she knows explicitly what's going to happen, she has a feeling about things and I think that's pretty apparent. And she even mentions about how the grandmother when Tony Collette says you were her favorite, you know, Charlie says she wanted me to be a boy. And Tony Collette's like, well, I was a tomboy. And we get the sense that that's not what she's that's talking about. That's not what she meant at all. And I don't understand how Tony Collette's character would read it that way. Well, because she has no other reason to think anything but else. why wouldn't you say, what do you, what makes you say that? Yeah, she doesn't ask questions. But, I mean, it's fine because we talked about this in the, in the Funny Games episode. As a parent explaining something to a child you rationalize things and you get to the explanation as quick as you can to get them to stop asking questions (laughs) and you calm them down and you explain things away that if you experience them you probably have similar questions but since it's your kid asking questions you want to just be able to explain it away oh well you know i was a tomboy she raised me kind of like a tomboy but that could be it too where tony collette's mom Raised her like a boy, too. Wanted her to be a boy. We hear things when when Tony Collette goes to therapy. She sits in on these, like, kind of group therapy sessions. Like an AA, where they all sit in a circle and they talk about their experiences. And also elsewhere throughout the, the movie, we learn these details about her mom. And how later in life she had DID, which we've talked about in other episodes. It's Dissociative Identity Disorder. And Tony Collette's brother kind of inherited that. We get to talk about the the concept of inheritance. And towards the end, uh, when he died, he committed suicide and was talking about how their mom wanted to put people inside of him. And, and that's how crazy he was. And the father died from starvation because of depression. Yes. And it's just the whole family's crazy. And this is inherited, basically. And... So she's obviously very apprehensive about this stuff. Um, but we also learn that Tony Collette, because when she found out she was pregnant, the first thing she did was leave her mom because she knew all this was a really bad influence and she didn't want her child around it and left. Well, she also, she wanted to have a miscarriage. Yes, and failed at that. And when she had her kid, got away from the mom And even Gabriel Byrne's character was like, at a certain point, had to be like, no, you can't even talk to her because it drives you insane. So do not call her ever again or whatever. But they reconnected when she needed to be taken care of. And she had another kid, Charlie. And Charlie did get exposed as a young child to 
Tony Collette's mom. She was fed by her. Yeah, she even wanted to feed you. We find out later that that means breastfed, mm-hmm. which is really weird. We see that in one and of the gross. dioramas where the the mother is standing over the bed with her breast out of her nightgown. And you're like, oh, my God, she meant breastfeed her? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. It's Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, my God. Great line in the movie that Tony Collette has. <laughs> so anyway, she she goes to this therapy session because she sees her mom in a shadow or whatever. And she's she's obviously not handling things well. And the dioramas aren't working, at least not immediately, because she has a lot to make. So she goes to this session and she just kind of unloads it on all these people. And you're just like, wow. She just gives this monologue. My mom was old. and She wasn't altogether there at the end. And we were pretty much estranged before that, so it really wasn't a huge blow. But I did love her. And she didn't have an easy life. She had DID, which became extreme at the end, and dementia. And my father died when I was a baby from starvation um, because he had psychotic depression. And he starved himself, which I'm sure was just as pleasant as it sounds. And then there's my brother. My older brother had schizophrenia, and when he was 16, he hanged himself in my mother's bedroom, and of course, his suicide note blamed her, accusing her of putting people inside him. So, that was my mom's life. I remember sitting in the theater and feeling like the characters in the movie look. Yeah, where they're just like, Jesus. <laughs> they're just like, their eyes are wide, and they're kind of like looking at her like, oh my God, oh my God. God. <laughs> oh my God. And I felt that same way. I'm just sitting there like my jaws on the floor. Yes, like, jaw on the floor is exactly it. That's what we talked about in the Hellraiser episode. But then you find out what it really means. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm talking about the movie has a way of just dragging you and hypnotizing you through a scene and you're just watching her give this monologue in rapt attention. And I just, I felt guilty again. <laughs> Guilty again. When she got sick, not that she was really even my mom at the end, and not that she would ever feel guilty about anything. And I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. Like, she has you. That's because Tony Collette's awesome. She really is. Apparently, she didn't want to do any more depressing films. <laughs> But when she saw this script, she's like, oh, I got to do this. And she's actually like an executive producer or something on it. I her and so. Gabriel Byrne. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She, this is a comment that we make. It's like it's one of those movies where you know it's going to be cr- um, critically praised, but it's going to do real poorly in theaters uh, when you when the actors are financing it. You know? <laughs> it's If it's an art house movie and the actors are financing it, oh, man, it's going to be it's going to do real shitty in theaters. And it did. It was, it was, there were a lot of buzz about it, but audience reception was not good. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Especially the second time. Yeah. I think you really need to see it twice. Probably, yeah. We can kind of fast forward here to when Peter, Alex Wolf's character, 
One of the Naked Brothers, by the way, if you know what that is, because I didn't. I didn't. The Naked Brothers Band is a show on, was it Nickelodeon or something? I don't know. Where him and his brother, like real life brother, wrote songs actually in real life that they could perform as this this brother duo musician group or whatever. And uh, they had albums and they were very successful. So he's... He's done well for himself before this, and he kind of makes this transition into serious drama. I think very well, but Kelsey's right when she points out he goes way over the top sometimes. But I think that's intentional. I think it's supposed to be. He is if that crying is intentional, he is then the director's overwhelmed. Wrong. He is consistently overwhelmed. It's ridiculous. Yeah, nobody sounds like that. <laughs> Well, people do if they're that overwhelmed. Okay, I want you to play it right here okay. and let our listeners decide. Okay. <laughs> what happened? I mean, you could argue that like, oh, but when Tony Collette starts like screaming her head off, it's over the top. No, that I believe. Yeah. I believe Tony screams. But his crying is so ridiculous. Yeah. So Peter, Alex Wolf's character, wants to go to a party. He's a big pothead, by the way. He smokes pot with his buddies under the bleachers and stuff like that. I know. Getting away with smoking pot at school I can't is even, nuts to me. I can't even imagine. Like, I mean, I didn't do any sort of drug in high school or anything like that. But like... And I also went to a private school, so maybe my perception is different. But I've taught at public high schools. I went to a public high school. I don't know where or how you could possibly get away with that. Yeah, we had what we called but blueberries. But movies show it all the time, <laughs> so it's got to be a thing, right? We had what we called blueberries, which were security guards. They wore blue jackets. And they were just like kind of patrolling. There was no place that you could stay for more than 10 minutes that a security guard wasn't going to pass by and be able to see you. Also, like, they're just full-on smoking, like, out of a pipe. Like, how are you not afraid yeah. of getting and caught? he has a bong in his bedroom just out on the table. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Anyway, he wants to go to a party, and Annie, Tony Collette's character, is like, well, does your sister gonna want to go? He's like, I didn't ask her. Well, ask her, you know, and then he asks her and she's like, I don't know. I don't know. But and he's like, I want to get you out of the house. You know, you're taking your sister. And so he takes his sister to this party. And it's it's nice in a way that they have that kind of relationship, the brother sister relationship where he's like, I mean, I wasn't planning on taking her, but I'll take her. Well, because at this point he can't back out of it now. Right. He wants to go to this party and he's already told his mom a lie about what it is. Yeah. So at that point, it's like, if I don't, if I say no, it's going to look weird. Right. But it's, but he's not like, oh God, my sister. Like they did this thing apparently where the director, writer, uh, Ari sent them out. Like they knew each other from school. Apparently they went to an acting school together. Uh, and, so they they knew at least of each other and had met each other before this. But he made them go out and spend hours eating at a restaurant together and asking Millie to not say very much. 
and they'd go out shopping together and he needed to figure out from her what kind of sweater she would want to wear. And that's the sweater she wears in the movie he, that he bought for her on this little exercise. That gigantic yeah. orange uh-huh. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a very believable, I think, kind of sweet brother-sister relationship. But they look nothing alike. No. So they go to this party and he, like, first thing talks to the girl he's, he has a crush on and is like, so, do you smoke weed? Because I got great weed. Well, no, because he first goes up to her, he's like, are you enjoying the party? And she's just like... Why, do you want to know if you should come? Yeah, like, this is super awkward. And he's like, I've got weed! Because yeah. that's the only thing he knows. And she's yeah. like, oh, okay. And then, yeah, then they go to the, the room, room and there's a bunch of people. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and she's like... I'm going with you. And he's absolutely not. Stay here. Look, they got cake. We know. Well, we don't necessarily know. We just see somebody close up. They want you to know there's nuts somewhere in this house. There's a girl who's chopping up nuts. Later on. They've made chocolate cake. Peter is like, look, chocolate cake. Get some chocolate cake. Uh, or is it for everybody? Just walk up there and they'll just hand you a cake. You don't have to do anything. Like, it's just get some cake. And so she does while he's getting high in the other bedroom. And then she ends up coming in and is like, Peter, she's, he's high as fuck. And like, what? What's going on? And she's like wheezing. It's like, it's really hard to breathe. And he's like, fuck. I think my throat's getting bigger. Yeah. So he knows what's happening, but he doesn't have an EpiPen for her. So he takes her. To a hospital, or at least they go to a hospital. He goes out on this country road that they had to drive down to to get to the party. There's a carcass of some sort on the road, and he has to swerve to avoid it, and it pulls him off of the road onto the dirt, and she has her head out the window trying to breathe because she can't, and he sideswipes a pole. This had a pole. much bigger impact in the film in the movie theater because oh, I had no idea it was coming. My God. I assumed she was going to die. I did not assume that was what was gonna happen. This, I, thought, I thought they were gonna get in a crash or something. This is <sighs> the moment of the movie. <sighs> this is the moment when you're like really tense because they're trying to drive to the hospital. You do not expect this to happen. And when it does jaw on the floor and it will remain there for the next 10 minutes at least (laughs) this is the moment where i was like i don't know if i was breathing for part of it (laughs) and i realized oh my god i haven't closed my mouth in forever (laughs) because i literally jaw open and he just sits there in the parked car you even said what happened to her well we don't know yet she hits no, her no, head. They show us that you full on see it. I thought we don't see it till it's covered with ants when she goes. No, we see her head get knocked off. Okay. What we see is her head is out the window and then they he kind of sideswipes this telephone pole and it hits her right in the head. And it knocks her head back. And we don't get the full extent of what actually happened. You can assume what happened. Yes. And he's just and sitting there. the sound there, is enough to tell you. And he refuses to look back. He's just staring straight forward, gripping the steering wheel. So like, are you okay? And he kind of like looks back and he kind of glances at her body and then he looks away. And he's just breathing heavily. 
And we cut to him pulling into the driveway at home, getting out of the car, going inside, walking down the hallway upstairs, going to his room, and collapsing on the bed. And that is it. He doesn't go to the hospital. He doesn't tell his parents. I don't know why, but I fully believed this. I was just going to say that. It is 100% believable. It doesn't sound like it would be. And actually, when my parents saw it, they actually said to me, like, why would he do that? And I'm like, I don't know. Something about his performance made it seem like he was just in total and utter shock. Like I said, I think Alex Wolf did a great job in this. This is crying as little something. (laughs) It's believable that he would do something like this in his shock. And we cut to the next morning and he's lying in bed, eyes wide awake, wide open. And we hear the sound of... And Tony call it, I'm going to go to the store, I'll be back in 20. Yeah, and then, and you know what's going through his mind, but he is not moving a fucking inch. And then you just hear her get to the car, and you hear her gasp, and you hear her wail, and the whole time we're just staring at his face, just eyes open. And then it cuts to her wailing at the funeral, and then it cuts to her wailing on the floor and all these times Gabriel Byrne is trying to like comfort her and she is just screaming, I want to die. I don't want to live anymore. She is absolutely devastated. She goes back to a support group meeting, but doesn't go inside. And Patty and Dowd. Patty. Patty from the leftovers. <laughs> I literally wrote down. Where is it? Here it is. This lady is never good news. <laughs> in anything she's in. She is never good news. <laughs> And she's like, hey, I just noticed that you stopped coming to the sessions. Is everything okay? And she's like, my my daughter died. And she said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And she wrote, writes her number down and gives it to her. It's like, listen, my son died. And my son and his son. My grandson. Drowned. And as she's telling the story, Tony Collette is just sitting in the driver's side <laughs> of her car. And, like, imagine being in that scenario. You're in your car, someone has confronted you, someone has said, you know, like, oh, if you ever needed to talk, here's and my you, number. You're, you're trying to make them feel stupid. Right. And, like, 
it and and they're they're like no something similar happened to me i lost my son and my grandson at the same time and explaining what happened and you're tony collette tony collette just says oh my god <laughs> oh my god like out loud and it is oh so my god perfect <laughs> it is so good i love tony collette she is so awesome but the point is she has somebody that maybe she can you know, empathize with and they can share their their loss together, not in a general sense, like in these therapy sessions where it's like these people have experienced loss, but their mother and then shortly after their own daughter by beheading. I didn't say this, but when she's wailing, it cuts to a shot of Charlie's head sitting in the dirt on the side of the road covered in ants. Holy fuck. Yeah. Like, Oh my god. Oh my god. So, yeah. And we also skipped the part about the fact that the br- the, the brother goes back to school, which I'm just like, why the fuck would he go back to school? I mean, school? eventually he goes back to school. But not that quick. No one would expect that. Yeah. And then he's like getting high with his friends again. And, and he starts hyperventilating too. And he says, "I can't breathe. I think my throat is getting bigger." Yeah. So he's reliving that moment yeah. over and over and over and over and over. You know how husbands have sympathy pains when their wives are giving birth or they're pregnant? It's it's his his guilt is manifesting. And I don't just mean he feels guilty and he's suffering for that. He is. And he feels very guilty. But he also feels kind of angry, and we'll get into that in a second. But it's physically manifesting in him. And he starts losing it. And he asks his friend to hold his hand. And they're all weirded out. But they do it. Because they, they, they know like what the him. fuck happened. <laughs> yeah, and they care about him, but they're a little bit weirded out. And all he wants is just hold hold my hand so he can get through this Like a panic mess. attack. Yeah, like he's having a panic attack. But specifically, it takes the form of what was happening to his sister right before she died. Something really, really stupid that I'm going to point out right now. Yeah. It's really fucking dumb. But while he's having this panic attack, they're having a stupid conversation. About nicknames for your significant others. Whoever wrote this is out of touch. Because it's Facebook? Kids do not use Facebook anymore. Kids make fun of you for using Facebook. It's all on Insta. (laughs) And I don't even know if Instagram is that big anymore. I don't know what they're using now, but I can tell you right now, it ain't Facebook. The kids call me old because I have a Facebook. So. That's interesting. There's a night where we see them having dinner in silence and... Annie looks at Peter, kind of gives him a look, and he's like, what, do you want to say something? Just say something. And they get into this knockdown drag out where she's talking about him, about how just if you could feel just a little bit of responsibility and like, you know, I can and she she expresses. But this is all in an argument that I get it. I understand you're going through something very painful and it hurts and you feel guilty. And this must be absolutely awful for you. And I wish I could take that away from you. But if you could just take some fucking responsibility, nobody takes responsibility. And he's like, what about you, mom? She didn't even want to go to the party. You made her go. And like, so. It's this whole back and forth, and it's this knockdown drag out, and she leaves. She ends up going to visit Patty. <laughs> and she sees... The character's name is Joan. Joan, yeah. And Dowd's character. 
and she sees the doormat. That's like, oh, that's funny. My mom used to make doormats like that. Oh, oh that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. and it's kind of like, <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> and and she recounts to her the actual story of how her daughter died, and you get the sense that Anne's like, oh my god, oh my god, and you know, it's just kind of kind of there. But then she also talks about how she used to sleepwalk. And there was one instance where she woke up having covered herself and her son in paint thinner and lit a match. And the lighting of the match woke up her and her son. And he screams and she put the match out right away and was like, oh my God. And meanwhile, Ann Dowd's character is just having to sit through this and you're like, <laughs> what must she be thinking? <laughs> having seen this movie, you know that she's not thinking what a normal person would be thinking. Nope. Not at all. But here's the thing. I still don't get what that's supposed to mean. Yeah. Is it simply just supposed to be sleepwalking? Is it just supposed to be she didn't want to be a mom, she's depressed? I think depressed. that's more what it is. It's a manifestation of the fact that she didn't want to continue on this line. Or was it something that was telling her to kill off her children? I think it's a it's this instinct that she has inside of her. It's why she left when she had her first kid to get away, do not perpetuate this family curse thing, and it's something that lives deep inside of her and it's her instinct. So when she goes to sleep and she sleeps sleepwalks, it comes out again because she doesn't have any control and her instinct takes over and her instinct is do not bring these lives into this world. End it now, because it's going to be worse. That's why she tried to have a miscarriage. And she tells her son that in another moment of sleepwalking. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a dream. Anyway. And then and then we see that she's recreating the scene of her daughter's death in a new diorama. And Gabriel Byrne is like, what the fuck? <laughs> Peter can't see this. And she's like, what? It's an objective viewpoint of the scene. And he is like, reasonably so, is like, you can't say that. You have no idea what this would do to him, whether you see it as objective or not. Gabriel Byrne's character is kind of like just a an audience to all of this and has to be like. He's a pretty pointless character. No, not really. He's there to say. He's ineffective, yeah. he's, but he's not, he's not ineffectual. He's there and, and, and he says things like, you're losing it. You know, you're going crazy. You've lost it. Like you trying to find this perspective on a scenario in order to cope with it. You've landed on what you consider a neutral perspective. And that's the way that you, that you process these painful moments in your life. That's not normal. And it's fine. That's the way you do it. And when that's all it was, I, I'm totally supportive of you. And he's involved like, okay, well, when's your show going to be? How far along are you? And he seems invested in it. And he's not like, you're a weirdo. He's a supportive <laughs> husband. But when it could have a traumatic effect on his son, that's when he's like, no, you are not exposing him to this stuff. 
And he starts to, like, really question her and become a little bit less supportive, more in the vein of, like, the husband from Insidious, who's like, I moved houses for you, where it's like, I've been very, very supportive of you. And this kind of weird stuff, like, but now I think this might be going too far. That's kind of the perspective that he brings to this movie. Anyway, the next time she runs into Joan, what happens? Uh, So Joan uh, tells her about this seance thing. And she's like, you got to come to my house. You've got to see it. It's real. So they do. And she does this very fake seeming seance. But it works. But it works. And, oh, it's my grandson, right? And so... It writes on a chalkboard, I love grandma, and and all that. And Tony Collette's like, what? This is not real. And she's really freaking out. She looks under the table to look for magnets. In reality, that's how they did it. But in the context of the movie, no, nothing under there. Nothing's happening. It's really moving on its own. The glass is moving. The chalk is moving. And she can't take it. Yeah. She's like, I gotta go. And as she's leaving, Joan's like, here, take this. These are the instructions how you can do it on your own. I learned how to do it on my own. Your whole family has to be there. Make sure your son is there. Yes. She says that specifically. Oh, she makes sure they're all there, right? She says, do it with your entire family in the house. Your son. Make sure your son is in there. Do it with your whole family. Yeah, uh-huh. And that was obviously ADR. It's one of the obvious moments that we noticed when we saw it for the first time. <laughs> it's almost like they threw it in. In post to be like, okay, we really need to establish this and why it's imperative that he's there and why she would think it's imperative that it, that, he, that he's there. So she has another sleepwalking moment. And this is when she confesses to Peter that she says specifically, he asks, why are you scared of me? And she's like, what? I never wanted to be your mother. <gasps> Recovers her mouth because she can't believe she said that. Why are you scared of me? What? I never wanted to be your mother. My mouth dropped at that point. Yeah, I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my my God. God. (laughs) There's this back and forth between the two of them and they're yelling and they're screaming at each other. And he's like, what's going on? He's panicking because like his mom's acting weird and like threatening and he doesn't know what to think or do. And he's traumatized by the death of his of his sister and she's she can't control the situation like she can control the dioramas and look at it and keep a moment in time this this moment's running away from her and so she's panicking and she's just saying things and she's telling the story about how she tried to have a miscarriage and it didn't work and i'm so happy that it didn't work and as they're screaming at each other she's like drenched drenched and he's drenched in paint thinner and then a match lights and they all go up and then she wakes up It was just a dream, at least this time. So there's obviously this sensation going on, and it's obviously very intense, and it's in her subconscious, and she can't do anything about it. So in the middle of the night, because of that dream, she gets up and decides to do a seance on her own. Yeah. And all of a sudden, she believes she's a medium, and she gets her son and her husband downstairs, and the son can sense something. The son keeps looking around and he like feels something just like Tony Collette did at the other seance at Patty's house. Yeah. Uh-huh. Joan's house. Sorry, she's Patty. Anyway, 
they do the seance thing, and the son is freaking out, and the the father, the husband, is trying to get Tony Collette to stop, and then Charlie enters her mother's body and starts screaming, where's mom? And the son is just like, I don't like this, I don't like this, make her stop, make her stop. And... Charlie is screaming like, why are you afraid of me? What's going on? Where's mom? And that's when the father decides to splash her with water to wake her the fuck up. Yeah. The son can see this weird light refraction thing that Charlie saw earlier in the in the movie, that the mother saw earlier in the movie, and now he's seeing it. Yeah. And... One of the other things that happens when Annie channels Charlie is her book that she draws these portraits in are actually being drawn before your eyes. And like things are appearing in the pages that she never drew. And so that's like, this is the thing. Whereas with Joan and her grandson, it was the chalkboard with Annie and Charlie. It's, Charlie's drawing book. But yeah, Peter is, he starts kind of hallucinating. And, you know, he sees that that glare that you talk about. He hears the of his sister. And things get really bad. And while Annie's at home, she notices that in the book, new pictures are being drawn and they're of Peter. And he looks like he's in pain and his eyes are crossed out and it's over and over and over again. And so she starts to kind of panic about that. And then she, throughout the movie, they complain about this weird smell. Kind of like, what was the other movie where that happened? What's that smell? And it turns out it was like the smell of death. There's a smell of the Amityville horror. Oh, yeah. They have a sour smell. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, and in uh, The Conjuring. Rotting meat. It's supposed to mean the, the the devil is there, but that's not what this is. <laughs> yes. Because so, you didn't talk about the phone call. Oh, yes. So early on in the movie, he gets a call saying that the mother's grave was desecrated in some way. And we don't know how that is. Later on in the movie, he gets an email with photos and we see that the grave was dug up. So this is like being fed to us throughout the movie. Anyway, Annie sees this in the book and she freaks out and tries to throw the book in the fire. And when she does, her arm catches fire. And so she gets the book out of, so just like the spine of the book is catching fire, so does her arm. And she grabs the book out of the fire and puts it out and the fire on her arm goes out. So she's freaking out and doesn't know what's going on. So she goes to Joan and Joan's not there. And we see inside and there's like markings on the table and like a pentagram and candles and Peter's picture is in the middle of the table. Cut to Peter at school sitting alone at a table and Joan is across the street yelling, Peter! I expel you. I expel you. you. And she's just like yelling at him. And we don't know what the fuck is going on. And Annie looks down and sees the floor mat again. And she's like, no, 
my mother made that is exactly what my mother did. So she goes to the boxes and goes to all of her mother's stuff where previously she found a book and it had a note in it and it was like, oh, you our sacrifices will pale in, with in the comparison rewards. to the rewards and it and it seems obvious that she's talking about heaven. She was born again uh, later in life or was just very religious. And is like, yes, all the shit our family has gone through, it'll be worth it when we get to heaven. We just need to stay vigilant. But it's seeming very, very weird to her now. She goes into these boxes and she finds the doormats and they're there. And she goes into the photo albums and sees pictures of Joan. And sees pictures of Joan with her mom and repeatedly with large groups of people. And they're wearing that necklace that she got from her mom and like weird sort of rituals happening in there. And then she looks in the other books and it's talking about the demon Paimon and, and all of that. And she's like super freaking out about this. And she ends up going into the attic to see if there's more stuff. And there's all these flies Really bad fly effect, by the way. It's just like black marks on the They film. also always go in there with their mouths fucking agape. Yeah, with all these flies flying around. So she goes up in there and sees that there's a decapitated body that she thinks is her mom's in the corner with that same design painted in blood on the wall, the same one that's on their necklace. And she can't identify, but she thinks it is. Meanwhile, back at school... Peter is hallucinating. He sees the light thing. He follows it to a reflection of himself in a cabinet to the left of him. And he's looking concerned, but his reflection is smiling. All of a sudden he seizes up and his hand goes in the air and then his head smashes down on the table and then it does it repeatedly. And then he screams and he falls out of his chair and everyone's like, oh my God. Oh Oh my God. God. (laughs) Oh my God. And they call home, but Annie's not answering because she's outside looking in the treehouse or whatever. So then Gabriel Byrne's character, the dad, he gets a call at work and he has to pick up the son and he drives home and she's like, Oh my God, you have to see this thing. And he's like, where the fuck were you? You know, help me get him out of the, out of the car. And they carry him out. He's like, his nose is all bandaged up and he's completely out of it. And they lay him down in his bed And he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're hysterical and all this stuff. And he's like, you got to look up into the attic. And he doesn't believe her. And he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, there's more. There's more. He's like, oh, there's more than your mom's dead body up in the attic? Of course there is. And he goes up there. And when he comes down, Jesus, fuck. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And... But then it dawns on him. It was you. You did it. You are losing your mind. You dug up your mother's body and brought her into the attic. This needs to stop. And it needs to stop now. I am calling the police. And she's like, no, you have to do this. I've decided we need to destroy this book. This book that all the drawings are in, this is how... She's staying tethered to this world and what's causing all this mayhem. And it's a moment where it's like, oh, that spirit that you thought was 
you know, your family member, your child or whatever, turns out it's actually some vicious demon. Other movies have done that too. Can you think of one? I couldn't think of one off the top of my head. When you're dealing with a spirit and you think it's a loved one, but it turns out it's actually a demon. Ouija. You said that while we were watching it too. If you can think of one as well, audience, please write us because it's driving me nuts trying to think of a movie where that happens. And it's like, it's not our kid or whatever. It's Insidious actually a demon. Two. Was it Insidious 2? I wrote it's down, I thought kid, it was an Insidious one. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if that's it, but maybe. Anyway, if you can think of it, please let us know. She's like, we need to get rid of this book, but I'm going to die. So I can't do that. I'm willing to make that happen, but I can't do it. Throw this in the fire for me. And he's like, no, this is, no, I'm not going to do it. No, fuck this. I'm calling the police. Like, this is a situation that I can't make a, a reasonable decision on what to do here. I need to call the police and we'll get this all sorted out. And you need to get the help that you desperately need. So that's how it's going to happen. And she's like, no. And she takes the book from him and just throws it into the fire. And then hell of a way to find out all this is real. Gabriel Byrne just goes up in flames. Completely, completely devoured by flames. Oh my God. Is her face... (laughs) she is shocked she thought it would do it to her yeah she thought because when she threw it in the fire before she caught on fire she thought she was connected because she was the medium but earlier we read in the book that paimon wants the most vulnerable people yeah the dad wasn't the most vulnerable so just get rid of him yeah Mm -hmm. so at, it's at this point when she has this look of horror, terror on her face that she kind of gets a more tranquil but disturbed look on her face. And it's obvious that she has been possessed. Been possessed. She's been traumatized to the point where it's easy for her to be taken over. Peter wakes up in his bedroom. He goes downstairs. He finds his dad's body burnt to a crisp and this whole time there are these really long ponderous shots that really take their time and you can see up in the corner like contrasting with devil's reign where it's these long stretches where nothing happens these are long takes and you're just they have you 100 percent. not when i first saw it oh god no i was totally but the second time the second time it was better because I don't want to say that it wasn't it was my frustration of not understanding what was happening. I think it was just because I didn't understand it, I was creating these ideas in my own head. No, that wouldn't I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't like it so much the first time. Maybe it was a little too arty. Yeah. I think I said that. It's two up its own ass. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about our thoughts on it in, in, in general in a bit. So you see like his mom, Tony Collette, kind of in her robe, kind of up in the corner of the room, just hanging there on nothing. And he doesn't see her. And he and when he's looking around, you see her kind of like swim through the air out the door. And it it's very much like on wires. I mean, it's a great effect because you don't see any of that. It was way cooler in the movie theater. Yeah. 
on the big screen, like seeing her up in the corner the first time you felt kind of cool because you saw it. Yeah. Then the second time you see it, you're like, I already know she's there. Yeah. So look, and then you're watching her the whole time. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then it looks kind of silly. So she swims out. But when I first out. saw it in the theater, I was like, uh-huh. oh, God. She swims out of the room and then he goes downstairs and when he's he goes into the living room and she's up in the far corner again and you see her again and he then he's looking at the dead body and he's looking around and he looks into a corner and the second time around I totally didn't see her in the corner until right before she moves she like comes out of the dark and starts chasing after him and he runs away <laughs> and he runs into um he runs up the stairs. We start seeing naked people around. Yes, including a la Rosemary's baby. Yes, including that man who was smiling at Charlie, and and a bunch of other people in the audience at the funeral for the the matriarch. And he runs upstairs and he's like screaming at his mom to like, you know, where mom stop? You got to stop because it's it's like she's sleepwalking almost, and now. This is the she's actually become violent, like she's threatened to do before. And he goes up into the attic because the attic's opened and he runs up there because he doesn't know what else to do going upstairs instead of going out the front door. And then they're all up in there. And even though she didn't come up after him, she's already up in the attic and she has a piano wire wrapped around her neck and is pulling it tight and dragging it back and forth basically sawing her own head off and he and that's just the only sound you get and all these naked old people just like smiling at him this made me jump again the second time i saw it because they come out of nowhere they come out of the blackness and you're like ah (laughs) and then he just like (laughs) fuck this and he just jumps out of the attic window into the garden below it's great and just Lands flat on the ground. I can totally see myself because, like, out of pure shock, you're just like, holy fuck, and you just jump out the window. Yes. <laughs> and then we still hear the only ambient noise we hear, the sawing of the head, and then it gets kind of crunchier, and then it stops, and then thud, roll, roll, roll. Then we see the light again, that refracted light, come onto his body and kind of enter his body, and he opens his eyes and he stands up and he just kind of walks towards the treehouse where it's lit up from the inside. And he goes up into the treehouse and he sees more naked people in there and they're all bowing. And then Joan's there, but she has a robe on. She's not naked. And we see this effigy basically. And the effigy has Charlie's actual head that they obviously retrieved sitting on top of it with a crown and then Joan goes through this whole thing about, you know, Paimon, we give you this vessel, this man, you know, leave Charlie, go to Peter. Charlie, you're all right now. You are Paimon, one of the eight kings of hell. We have looked to the Northwest and called you in. We've corrected your first female body and give you now this healthy male host. We reject the Trinity and pray devoutly to you, great Payman. Give us your knowledge of all secret things 
bring us honor, wealth, and good familiars. Bind all men to our will as we have bound ourselves for now and ever to yours. And then he just kind of looks at the screen and they're like chanting and bowing and stuff. Hail Paymon! Hail Paymon! Hail Paymon! Hail! And then that's it. That's the end of the movie. Lightning round, Kelsey. I have a lot, lot, lot of things to talk about. Okay. Well, this has been an hour so far. Do my best to make it short. Okay. Number one thing, number one complaint, just like in Devil's Reign, they're doing all of this to get things from the devil, right? I know it's Paimon. It's not exactly the devil. Right. I, yeah, d- yeah, yeah. I did all the research on him. I understand he's... A demon. He's one of the He's 72. He, you know. Represents mischief. And they do a really good job with, you know, the crown that he wears. And you hear all this music playing when they put the crown on it because that's what he, how he comes across the desert. Whatever. The point is, he's supposed to get, he's like a genie, apparently. Uh-huh. And he gives you wishes and he knows all these secrets and shit. Yeah. But it comes with a price. Right? So, I see that Tony Collette's mom's price was her family her family yeah that's why her son killed himself and he said she's trying to put people inside of me that's literally what she was trying to do right and he killed himself rather than have that happen right what are the other people sacrificing what do they have to do for all this uh nothing they're How's not supposed that fair? to well why because they- they're all the followers maybe they have sacrificed something this is not the sacrifice you make to be rewarded by Paymon. This is the thing that needs to happen, the one thing that needs to happen once to bring Paymon back, and somebody has to do it. It's not the, the, the same agreement that everyone makes. This is the great honor. This is why in the photo album, we see Annie's mom getting all this praise, and she's on her knees, and she's looking, you know, transcendent, and everyone's like, oh, you're so great, because she's the one that's been elected to make the greatest sacrifice and thus get the greatest reward and get the most praise. These other people, they may be making their own sacrifices. The movie's not about them. It's about this one family. That's why it's called Hereditary. It's about one family line, not about all these other people. I'm sure they're making their own sacrifices. That's not the point. The point is is that this is happening to this family because that matriarch made the greatest sacrifice, which is she sacrificed her own flesh and blood to be this vessel for Paimon, and it destroyed the family in the process. But theoretically, Peter as Paimon and... The grandmother, the matriarch, will get these great rewards for sacrificing the largest sacrifice. But yeah. she died, apparently a miserable death. No, they but they say the next life. She says in her writings, the rewards that we will get in the next life. It's about her spirit, what's going to happen to her. But the other people are getting the rewards now. Well, yeah, she didn't expect to die first. 
She tried her son and her son died. And then she tried uh, Peter, but uh, Annie wouldn't let Peter anywhere near her. And so then when she finally got to Charlie, it's been this long process. And then it needed to get the spirit needed to get into Charlie, but wouldn't actually get what Paymon wants until it could get to a boy, which is why this movie is about getting the spirit from Charlie to Peter. And that's when Paymon actually manifests in his most true form. And that's when the reward actually happens. But the matriarch died before that could happen. But the rest of the group needs to make it happen in her stead. I just, I, that's always my biggest question. It's the same thing with Devil's Rant. I'm just like, what do you hope to gain? Like, it, and if you believe in these things, you've got to know you're going to hell when you die. No, because first of all, Satanists with the Devil's Reign, real quick, Satanists in real life, at least the Church of Satan, the one that's recognized as like the actual Satanist religion uh, that Anton LaVey founded, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the devil. They believe in Satan the way it was originally translated in the Jewish text, which just means opposition. And they see themselves as opposition to religious people. And yes, they believe in some weird shit too, but they rationalize that in their own ways, just like religious people do. But they believe themselves to be more rational and the enemies of the religious. That's why they call themselves the Church of Satan. And I did find it fascinating. I looked it up. You were right. The leader of that church, you're absolutely right. He did it because he thought it was funny that that most people believe that like... Yeah, he thought they were idiots. Yes, Yes, he thinks that people who think that people that believe in Satan, but they don't really, are stupid because they think it's very complicated. Yeah, he thinks it's funny to troll people like that. He's like a big troll. Or was, he passed away in the 90s. Anyway, that's that's Satanist. But these people. Yes, they believe that, oh, this religious text or these other religious texts, they're biased and they're not true. They believe that the entities exist, but the point of view that this takes, it's like history books. You know, history is written by the winners. Whether it's true or not, there's reason to be skeptical of what of what's written in a history book when it's written by the people that it's about. So when religious groups say, oh, Jesus is great and God is great and Satan's evil and you're going to go to hell if you follow Satan, people that believe in the greatness and the grandiosity of Satan or other demons think that the book is lying because it's written by followers of God. So of course they're going to say that. Why wouldn't they say, if you believe in this other group, you're evil and you're going to hell? They believe, no, Satan is powerful and he rewards his followers. That's what they believe. And again, we're conflating Paymon and Satan, but it's just to have a general discussion about what is it that's going through the minds of people that are willing to do what demons want them to do? How is it that they don't know they're going to get fucked over? Because that's the perspective of the, of the people that believe they're on the side of good when they're on when they're opposing these demons. Of course, you're going to believe that because you believe they're awful and evil. These people believe they're great and terrible and powerful. Anything else you want to say about that, though? I don't see how it's fucking fair. Well, the idea is, is if the if the mother had lived, maybe it's in the in the next life, like I was suggesting earlier. Maybe she gets some great rewards in the next life or is supposed to. She wanted this to happen before she died, but she ended up dying because she had DID and dementia. But if you're one of those people, wouldn't you be like, hmm, things didn't work out so good for her? Maybe 
it won't work out so good for me. I don't right, know. Right, because the thing that they were trying to accomplish didn't happen. <laughs> now they're actually accomplishing it. They can get their rewards. And of course, some people are going to make bigger sacrifices than others. That's why, you know, the people that, you know, martyrs, there are martyrs. Well, isn't it unfair that not everyone's a martyr? Is that what you're saying? Yes, being a martyr is unfair, but that's the point. You're making a great sacrifice in order to accomplish something for other people. And the inference is that that is partly its own reward, but also you get rewarded the most in the next life. Okay, so there's another big confusing question for me. So Paimon or Paimon, however you're supposed to say it, is supposed to be inside Charlie. Charlie. Yeah. So Charlie is like half Paymon, half herself. Yeah, because Paymon needs boys, needs needs males. So earlier in the film, earlier tonight, I asked, is it supposed to be that there's something wrong with her, or is she acting that way because part of her is a demon? I think the implication is that because part of her is a demon, but it's she's she can't be the true vessel for Paymon because she's not a male. Right. I understand that. So she's not completely possessed. I understand that. Yeah. So then later when she like cuts the head off of the bird. Yeah, she's just fucking weird. And 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 she has this concept of beheadings in her. Somewhere in her, she knows what's going to happen. Exactly. And so like, I asked that too. How much does she really know is going on? I, and I think she- it's all subconscious. I think she's just acting weird to her. Well, then at the very end. Mm-hmm. We know that Peter is completely gone, so now, but but at the same time, she's doing the tongue clicking, and Patty calls her Charlie. She says, don't worry, Charlie, everything is going to be okay. Yeah, because I think they're kind of conflated in one. So, but now it's Paymon and Charlie forever inside Peter's body? No, I, my, my explanation would be that Paymon and Charlie are the same thing, and... And when we see Charlie, it's an undeveloped Paimon because this is Paimon growing up, basically living the life of a child growing up, and it's an inappropriate vessel. So he can't be who Paimon really is. And when Paimon slash Charlie sees the future, they don't know that's what they're seeing. It's just these compulsions that they have. It's not until... The Paymon Charlie spirit gets into Peter that it can truly manifest and become the great thing that it is. So Paymon, I don't I don't think Paymon and Charlie are two different things. I think they're the same thing. Charlie was infected as a child by the grandmother and was Paymon at that point. But she has no concept of that. No, not until she gets into Peter. Anyway, another thing that confused me. Um, in one of the, uh, the first scene where we see Peter at school, he's in an English class, and the girl he has a crush on raises her hand and says, I th- they're talking about a story. I don't know what story it is. Yeah, one of the things written on the wall is on the chalkboard is uh, escaping fate, which is what they talk about in Halloween when they're sitting in the classroom. And so people think that's a reference to Halloween. Well, she says, I think it's arrogance because he ignores all of the signs that are being given to him. Because he thinks he knows best. Yeah. Uh 
I think that's the mother. Who not is that? I'm exactly who are they talking about? I don't think it's about? Peter. I think it's the mother. You mean the mom who died, or you mean um, Tony? I mean Collette? Annie, Tony Collette. I think she's the arrogant one. She thinks she knows everything. But she doesn't act that way. She does. Remember when she, she does, loses she her does, mind at the dinner table? She does after Charlie dies. Yeah. But that's, I mean, you can chalk that up to just anguish. Right. But People the way, react differently But to the anguish. way she acts through the entire thing, she is barely empathetic with anybody. Through the entire movie, at every point from the very beginning. She is wrapped up in her own little world. And that's what kills her is because she doesn't see all these signs that we end up seeing and also don't understand until you watch it a second time. They also say um, after that, they say it's hopeless. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the idea is, are we destined to a fate or do we have the option to choose? I think that's a good bridge into what the movie is all about. Uh, because our previous discussion was more about the plot minutia and about understanding what's going on in the mechanics of the world. And people can sometimes it, – it's fun to have those discussions, and I really enjoy having those discussions. But too often people have those d- discussions at the expense of the whole point of the movie, which is, okay, what's it really about and what's it trying to communicate? So what do you think it's trying to communicate? Is that the concept it's trying to communicate that we can't escape fate that? Yeah, it's it, that uh, could we have escaped it if we just looked at all the signs or is it is it a story about how what's going to happen to you is going to happen to you and it's preordained. That's what we get through Charlie getting. I mean, we don't ever see flashes of anything, but she's basically behaving in a way that is premonition of the future or is it about processing grief is is the way that we're seeing these shots in these sort of diorama ways is the way they're shot like that supposed to evoke the dioramas that she's making in the story and she's making them in order to have a neutral view on the on the event so she can better process the trauma is this about processing trauma and it's all 100% metaphor and it's about the destruction of her family because of things that were going on. Is it, is this story that she makes up about this demon and putting demons in kids, the the way she rationalizes the fact that her brother was actually schizophrenic and thought not accurately that the mother was trying to put people inside of him and that's why he committed suicide. Is this a story that she concocts in order to like compartmentalize and rationalize and process the tragic things that have been happening in her family. And some of them are hereditary, like mental illness, right? And it seems that this just goes from her mother to her and her brother and her dad. And now her daughter's dead. And it's the only way through this metaphor of this demon Paimon that she can process all this shit that's happened to her family. Is that what it's about? Or is it literal? Or, like, what do you think the point of it is? I think it's about people who wallow will destroy everyone around them. Interesting. I think you could totally make an argument for that. Yeah. Because she literally does. Yeah, and even herself in the end. Yeah. 
She she wallows in her misery. She sits surrounded by the worst memories. Yeah. She sits in that room and she recreates them over and over and over again. And she just looks at them all day. Trying to process them. Yeah. And that, that. And that cuts her off from the rest mm-hmm. of her family. So that's like doubling down on what I was saying. It's an extra layer there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's not paying enough attention to her children. So something terrible happens to one of her children. Yeah. She places, which is, again, something terrible that happens to the other child, too. She places all of the blame on the yep. other one, which destroys that one. Yeah. And she ends up destroying her husband. Yeah. And then she ends up killing herself. Which, yeah. Which, so, I mean, I, so you're going the metaphor route, right? But it's an extra layer. The husband going up in flames is him, I assume, leaving. Something. Or right? just going crazy from her. Yeah. Putting up with her all the time. But either way, he is dead as far as she's concerned. And it's because she thought she was doing the right thing. People and making, who yeah. can't move on yeah. will bring misery upon themselves. I only have one last thing to say. Lightning round style. I know this is, hasn't been a very good lightning round because we've been diving more into the meaning of the of the movie. But do you have any more lightning round stuff? I have a couple of things. One, she lies to her husband when she goes to the therapy. Yes, session. that was another thing I wanted to say. Go ahead. So she's going to go to therapy and she doesn't want to tell her husband that. I totally understand. I get that. People do that. But her lie is that she's going to go see a movie by herself. Does he just not like movies? <laughs> I mean, okay, I wrote down she sees movies on her own, question mark. Exactly. I mean, obviously she doesn't actually because she goes to the group therapy sessions, but that's an excuse that actually works. Exactly. It's conceivable that she would go. So, theoretically, in this metaphor, like, is that something that she does? She goes out and she lives this life on her own. She separates herself so much because she's wallowing. That she something like going to a movie on your own multiple times without your family, without your husband, is something that is conceivable. Maybe in this in this metaphor, it's something that she actually does, and this is how it translates in the in the metaphor. Yeah, I was like, what? In what world would that actually be a reasonable? Right? Story. Why wouldn't you just be like, I'm going to go shopping or... And never ask what the movie was about or... <laughs> well, he he, t- he lets on later that he knew that she was lying, but it's like... Well, because he says, is that what you were doing when you were going to the movies? When you left? Were you, were you digging up your mother's corpse? Yeah. She has one of the greatest lines in cinema for 2018. Aside from, oh my God. Oh my God. What? Would you ask... She has one of the greatest lines in cinema from twenty seven from twenty eighteen. Oh, what's that? When she's at the dinner table and they're having this argument, and he says something about like what the fuck, mom, or something like that, and she stands up and is like, "Don't you swear at me, you little shit!" And that's this is when she goes off. And the greatest line is, "And you just sit there looking at me with that fucking face on your face." <laughs> It's very real. It was very real. Mm-hmm. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? All I do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that 
fucking face on your face. Believable and hilarious and tragic. And just when we talked about how it's a family drama, first of all, when we talk about the metaphor, all that crazy shit doesn't happen in real life. What you have left is a family drama. And it really is for a large portion of the movie, just a family drama and one that is so compelling, mm-hmm. like very compelling and and real. Like we say, bizarre stuff happens, but you believe it. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? I know. What do you think it got on Metacritic? Well, it was 89, right? No. Oh, yeah. 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 So for Metacritic, 77. 87. Very rare case mm-hmm. where the Metacritic, even though it is lower than a high score on Rotten Tomatoes, is still really close to that. Uh, 87%. Critics' consensus, Hereditary uses its classic setup as the framework for a harrowing, uncommonly unsettling horror film whose cold touch lingers long beyond the closing credits. I think that's pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. I don't think it quite touches on a few of the things the few of the qualities and the way it makes you feel, but they talk about how it lingers on after the closing credits, but you, you know, like, Oh, you're, you're kind of touched and you're still thinking about it and you're, it makes you kind of quiet afterwards, but it's like that throughout the entire movie. You're just kind of quiet the entire time, but cinema score, which is where, you know, they survey people after having come out of the movie, just everyday Joe's D plus. Yeah, I I understand that. Yep. When I first walked out, my my number would have been way lower than it's going to be today. It's probably not it's not as bad as Mother is in that regard. Oh god, Mother's Mother just is a, bad. It's extreme <laughs> in that regard where Yeah, sure, I'm sure critics may love it because it says something. But Allegory does not mean good movie. Right. (laughs) Right. I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. But you can see that and you can see why audiences would come out and go, what the fuck? So it's not quite as bad as that. I totally understand. Yeah. If you had asked me right when I walked out, I shudder to think at what I might have said. Because now that I've, and that's why I kind of knew that. And that's why I said I want to do a whole thing about this. Because I needed time for it to ruminate. And then I'm really glad I saw it a second time. Yeah. So with that said, what would you give it? I'll give it a 90. Yeah. I think it's very good. I I would give it a 90 as well. It's fantastic. I don't think it's perfect. No, not at all. It has a lot, a lot of... When you get into the nitty gritty, it kind of falls apart for me. But again, again, but that's the minutia of the plot is not where the value is. In and this. that's my concept of what it is to believe in this Paimon character. Yeah. They don't give you enough information for me. Yeah. So I'm kind of making up a lot of it in my head. And what I'm making up in my head makes it seem stupid. So I wish they had given me more information. I understand why they didn't. Yeah. I totally see that. It's like what you always complain about, exposition dumps. Why would anyone do that? Right. But for me as an audience member, I needed you to explain it better to well, me. Well, it's different. I mean, the, th- the thing I hate about just your average audience goer is they ask too many questions about the minutia, right? Like I was saying. Too many questions about what does this mean and what happened there. And it's how we get movies like the prequels to Star Wars because you need to know the answers to everything. And it's how we get fucking Han Solo 
the mo- that you know we get solo a Star Wars story is because people demand to know the minutia and the backstories to everything and the explanations to everything, and you get crap when the only mo- <laughs> when all the movie about is about is lore. I hate that. I don't think that's what you're saying. What you're saying is they leave too many gaps that you're forced to fill on your own. And that gives you a worse impression because what you're filling it with <laughs> is the only thing you can you can think of that sounds reasonable to you is kind of silly. Yes. And and that's unfortunate because it makes you think worse of a film that would otherwise be incredible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can I can totally get that. But yeah, this is like it's a very slow, meandering ride that that Honestly, I can say I was never once bored in. I mentioned in the original conversation that I looked at my watch at one point and it was over an hour in before anything like major happened. <laughs> and it wasn't because I was bored, but because I was like, this is a horror movie. <laughs> Did I walk into the wrong movie? Like, obviously, I know I didn't. But like, it was just a drama for so long that I had to like be like. This is very impressive that it's had me this long. How long has this been? And it would have been like an hour. So, yeah, that's hereditary. Any last thoughts? No. Really quick, because I know we've been talking about hereditary for a long time. Suspiria. Spoiler free. Let it miss you. That's my spoiler free review. You don't have to just... Don't see it. That's my review. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful piece of cinema. But I think this movie was much more effective. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying it's a good movie. No, but I mean from, the, saying... from the beauty aspect of it. Oh, I don't. No. Suspiria is gorgeous. You think? The dancing is fantastic. Mm. The color, the colors are not the same colors as the originals. So and please not don't in think the that's what way, I mean. Yeah, not in the same way that Dario Argento no. like used used color. Right. No, I just mean the movement and the acting, especially on Tilda Swinton's part. Yeah, Tilda Swinton. It is. It is beautiful to I watch. Thought, honestly, I thought Dakota Johnson overdid it. No, I because I think she, she overdid it. <laughs> I thought she she overdid it at the end that last scene that she's in, but. I thought she did the best job out of everyone there. Tilda Swinton, uncharacteristically, I was unimpressed. I thought she did a great job. But, no, I do not think it's a good movie. But I can't deny how pretty it is. I just can't. But it is a meandering film that has no idea what it wants to be about. It makes no sense. It It is absolutely nothing to do beyond the fact that it's a dance academy. With some witches. With some witches. It is nothing to do with the original Suspiria. And I think you're going a little far with that, but it's very, no, very different. No, I am not. It's I know very it's not. Different. It is extremely different. And it's confusing. It is. Not in ways where it's like, oh, it's a it's a it's a maze or a puzzle that you have to figure out. It's like, no, they they it, I almost think they're intentionally trying to confuse you, but I don't think that the filmmakers are that skilled to where any of this feels intentional. It feels sloppy. And it just goes to a place at the end where you're like, you don't get to be this now. <laughs> in a completely different way as Hereditary, where it's one movie and a completely different thing, and then it goes nuts at the end. 
this does the same thing, but it is a hundred percent unearned. And then you're like, what the whole characters where you're like, why is this character where got so much focus throughout the movie? And it seems like the movie is about them entirely. Why is this character even in this movie and involved in the plot in any way? Cause they are completely <laughs> inconsequential to the plot. Anyway, we didn't like it. <laughs> it made me angry. Yes. And I'm not even that big. Like I love the original Dario Argento movie. So do I. Having watched it twice, but I'm not like a big. I'm not somebody you would be able to like. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to recite to you the whole entire plot of the movie. Yeah, or I don't. It's not like my favorite horror movie or anything like that. But I have a lot of respect for it. Yeah, and I really, really like it. Yeah, so but it it this feels like this was like very disrespectful. Yes. yes. Uh huh. Yeah, I think what I said to my parents was, "It is." unfair to Argento's um legacy legacy what did did they see it no okay because your parents see fucking everything I'm surprised they didn't see that well after what I told them I don't think they're gonna see it for sure (laughs) yeah yeah it's just spoiler free review people if you want to rent it when it comes out see it that way even even though like Kelsey says it it is a beautiful movie. Like, I don't think there's anything where you need to be in a theater to enjoy that beauty. But if you haven't seen, if you didn't see Hereditary in a theater, I feel sorry for you because yeah, it there, was something there else. are scenes that were just like, oh, <laughs> when the head comes off. Oh my God. You hear gasps from the audience, but there is like a tangible, like curtain of something that just comes over the entire <laughs> audience and you're all just there in rapt attention, <laughs> eyes bulging out at the screen and you can just feel that everyone in the audience is feeling the same way and you just don't get that when you're watching it at home yeah so i'm sorry i really am like kelsey said sorry if you didn't get to see this in the theater anyway suspiria hereditary devil's reign this was an episode about families being destroyed by demonic curses what are we watching next week kelsey next week is another um recommendation this time from chloe thank you chloe chloe So Chloe asked us to do two movies that were within the last 20 years. We're going to do both, but I'm separating them because we always do one that is over 20 years and one that's under 20 years. So I'm sorry about that, Chloe, but we will be doing both of the movies. But this week, next week, her recommendation was Rose Red. Okay. Which is the Stephen King TV miniseries. Yes, but it is not based on a book. Nope. Well, there is a book, but it wasn't written by Stephen King. Yeah. And we're going to pair it with, so Rose Red is a haunted house movie, so we're pairing it with another haunted house movie that I've wanted to see for ages, but I've, I've heard it's terrible, but it's called Burnt Offerings. Yeah. So we're going to be watching Burnt Offerings and Rose Red next week. To be clear, that's not Burnt Offering. Which the, is a more modern, they're completely different movies, Burnt Offerings from the 70s or I late 60s? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to be watching uh, both of those. So excited for that. And again, thank you, Adam, for your recommendation for this yes, week. Yes, thanks, Adam. Really glad we got to talk about uh, our hereditary after all, like Kelsey mentioned in our Hellraiser episode. So that's next week. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com. There you can browse all of our episodes. You can search for keywords or episode titles. There's even a list of every movie we've ever done. Uh, 
You can leave a comment there on any one of those episodes, share your thoughts on the movies, recommend one or two for us to cover in a future episode. You can email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. Uh, we've gotten a few emails, a few corrections and comments on things we've said in past episodes. We may be bringing them in to future episodes. So please let us know if you're okay with that. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pod Cemetery. I'll add comments while I'm editing an episode sometimes, and we'll link to those in the episode description, so keep an eye out for those. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. It's always best if we can get five stars and an actual written review, because those weigh the heaviest. And so, if you haven't done that already, we just ask that you please do. Uh, Better than that, share us with your friends, and better than that, listen in the first place. Thank you guys so much. Uh, We really appreciate it, and we love you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I have been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Kelsey, any last words? As the cock will crow in the dawn, after my body burns, so too will the sun rise and cast my shadow over this town again and again, you fools! The hell is souls committed 300 years have passed The book still lies Corvus still waits It's what you put your faith in Return what has been taken Fiends he said to fight They have no eyes For them it's too late It's pouring down It's coming for you In shadow, furious with towel, darker than the souls, the storm arrives, exposing its prey. Dragging without warning, the tempest holds a jury. Judgment has been cast, falling from the sky. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. Fuck you, PlayStation. The Haunting of Hill House is kind of a reverse hereditary. Where hereditary starts as a family drama and it ends as a horror movie. Haunting a Hill House starts as a horror show and ends as a family drama. Should have been the other way around. Yeah. Well, because I think in retrospect, a friend of mine said, oh, you know, watch it again because you're going to notice a lot of little things. But everything becomes less scary when you know what it is. Not more. In that show. Exactly. So. Good show. Really enjoyed it. But. Kind of disappointed by the ending. Ends up just being depressing and not scary. Yep. Uh huh. But family, that should be inspirational, Kelsey. Hmm. You're out of touch. Amount of time. <laughs> Captain Howdy, that is very nice. Yeah, no, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> These people believe they're great and terrible and powerful. And that's. Great the- and terrible. What is that from? 
Pet Sounds cemetery. so familiar. Pet cemetery. He says it over and over again. Oh, the oh, kid. are you not there yet? Oh. No, 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 no. I'm not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Does Gage say that? No. Who says it like that? Um, what's her name? The one who scares me. Oh, okay, okay. Oz, the great and terrible. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Oh my god. <laughs> 